Uh, If you're new with us, we have been walking through a series in the book of Genesis, and so this morning we're in Genesis chapter 29, and so you can start making your way there uh, in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we've got one for you. If you didn't grab it on your way in, you can grab one of those black hardback ones over there on that table uh, and keep it. That's our gift to you uh, as a church. But Genesis 29 is where we're going to be this morning, and uh, we didn't plan it this way to line up this way with Valentine's Day, but it did. Uh, And so to introduce this text, I've got to tell you that uh, people will do some crazy things for love. Uh, I I think probably the best example of this is The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, where uh, all these people, they will quit their jobs if they have a job uh, that's something other than Instagram influencer or life coach. Uh, They will quit their job and they'll go to move and live in a house with 30 other strangers, 30 other men or women, uh, all competing for the love of one man or one woman. Uh, what could go wrong with that, right? Uh, now, I haven't seen this, uh, but I'd heard about it, and so I looked it up. This is the sermon research that you're paying me for during the week. Uh, there's this reality TV show called Married at First Sight, and uh, it's exactly that. Uh, apparently, what happens is the first time that these couples see each other uh, is at their wedding, when they get married. And so they get married at first sight, and then they have eight weeks to uh, live together, and then at the end of the eight weeks, they decide whether or not they want to keep the relationship going or if they want to get uh, a divorce at the end of the eight weeks. Like, that's a crazy thing to do for love. Uh, I have known people that have moved to different states and schools to pursue a dating relationship. I have even heard uh, of somebody who took a briefcase that someone left behind at the airport and drove with their best friend from Providence, Rhode Island to Aspen, Colorado in a Mudcuts van, uh, all in search of love. People will do some crazy things for love, right? And I I think the reason why uh, is because we were actually made for this. Uh, We were made for this. The Bible tells us that our God, the triune God, is a God of love, that He is love. He defines uh, what love is and that we are made in His image. And so as people made in His image, we are made for relationships of love. Uh, We are made to be loved and to love Uh, both God and others. And and so because of that, we look for love. And so what we're going to see in this text this morning uh, is is a couple people doing some pretty crazy things uh, in search of love. We're going to see that we are all looking for love, and unfortunately, we're all looking in all the wrong places. Uh, And so as we walk through this text this morning, we're going to see the wrong places that we look for love, and then the disappointment and disillusionment that that leads to, and then finally, Uh, where we can find uh, this sort of love that we were made for. And I'll just caveat this before we jump in. Uh, I think probably the best sermon I've ever heard, just ever in general, uh, is Tim Keller's sermon on this text. And so I'll tell you up front, I'm not preaching his sermon, uh, but I would recommend that you go and listen to it this week. Don't go look it up right now. Uh, Wait till after this sermon. Uh, But listen to it later on this week. It's called The Girl That Nobody Wanted. And uh, man, it'll really bless you and it'll help you see Jesus. I'm not preaching his sermon, but I am borrowing quite a bit uh, of his lines of interpretation because honestly, like, I just can't see it any other way now. I think this is what the text means and what the text is saying. Uh, If you've read this story to your kids lately in the Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, you'll know that she takes a similar interpretation. Uh, She says in the intro, she credits Tim Keller uh, for a lot of her stories. And so uh, if you've read that lately, just know I'm borrowing just like she is. Uh, But if you haven't read that story to your kids lately, I think that'd be a great thing that you could do tonight. Read this story uh, in the Jesus Storybook Bible to them and talk about what what you learned uh, at church this morning. 
Uh, All right, caveat over. Uh, With that, let's look at this text together. Genesis 29. We're going to get all the way through the chapter, but let's start reading the first 30 verses. Starting in verse 1, the very word of God to us today. It speaks to us like this. It says, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel his daughter is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served Laban for another seven years. And so over the past few weeks, we have seen Jacob uh, deceive his father into getting the blessing that should have gone to Esau, his brother. Uh, And his brother Esau was so mad about that that he 
uh, was making plans to kill him, and so his mom said that he needed to flee, run away from the family, go to a different land, uh, go to her brother Laban, his uncle, uh, and go find him until Esau cooled down and was less angry. And so uh, last week we saw Jacob started on this journey, and God met him at a no-name place and blessed him and said that he would be with him. And now finally, Jacob has arrived uh, at Laban's place. And when Jacob arrives at Laban's place, it tells us that he sees a, a field that has a well of water in the field. Now, if, if you've been with us in Genesis, that should immediately set off some bells, right? Now, I think I've told you before, I think one of the best questions you can ask when you read your Bible uh, is just to look for patterns and to ask the question, where have I heard this before? Uh, Because in Genesis chapter 24, when Abraham sent his servant to go get a wife for his son Isaac, this servant came to this same land, uh, and he met a woman at a well of water. And that woman that would later become Isaac's wife, uh, that was Rebekah, Jacob's mother, Laban's sister. And and so if we're reading this and we're thinking, okay, uh, a well in this land, uh, a meeting between a man and a woman, uh, Abraham's family, there's about to be a wedding here. Uh, we would be right. But, but Jacob comes upon this well in the field, and as other shepherds come to the, to the well, he says, hey, do you guys know Laban? And they say that they do. And they say, not only do we know Laban, uh, his daughter Rachel is coming up to this well right now to water her sheep. And then I love what Jacob says in verse 7, because he basically says, like, hey, the workday isn't over. Uh, why don't you guys water your sheep and get out of here? Go shepherd them somewhere else so that I can talk to Rachel, uh, so I can get some alone time with Rachel. But they say, hey, the stone over the well, it's way too big. We've got to wait for other shepherds to come so we can all put our strength together uh, and get this stone off of the well. Uh, But then in verse 10, it tells us that when Jacob sees Rachel, uh, he he gets some he-man strength and he rolls this stone off of the well all by himself. Now, I told you back when we were introduced to Jacob in chapter 25, when it said that he was a quiet man dwelling in tents, Uh, that we should not kind of put our modern conception of that to think he's this like weak, fragile, uh, sissy mama's boy. No offense to you if you are a sissy mama's boy. There's no shame in that. Uh, But but I told you that that wasn't what that was saying, and I knew you didn't believe me back then, uh, but you should have because Jacob has been doing his squats and his deadlifts. Uh, He's been working out, and so he flexes some strength here, and he rolls this stone off the well all by himself. Uh, This would not be the first time either that a guy has tried to do a feat of strength to impress a girl, right? Uh, If you grew up going to youth group, you knew it was how many chairs you could stack under your arms and and carry when we were folding up and stacking the chairs. For Jacob, it's if he can get the stone off of the well all by himself. And so Jacob does this. He gets the stone off of the well, and then it says that he comes up to Rachel and he gives her a kiss of greeting, uh, and then he weeps over her, which I'll just be honest, I don't really know what to do with that. Uh, and so I, I will say, like, if a guy does that to you on a first date, you probably shouldn't give him a second one. Uh, but I, I think Jacob is just overjoyed that this is uh, somebody who's marriage material. This is someone from Abraham's family uh, who he was looking for. And so he, uh, he weeps some tears of joy, but uh, he tells her who he is. They go back to Laban's house. And then after a month of staying with Laban and working for him, Laban's like, hey, Uh, your family, it's probably not right to make you work for me for free. Uh, What should I pay you? Now, that's a good clue, and that should give us a good hint that Laban is going to be a pretty shady character uh, if the first time he thinks about paying Jacob is a month into the job. 
right? But he says, hey, what shall your wages be? What do you want me to pay you? And, and the text tells us that Laban has two daughters, uh, Rachel and Leah, uh, and, and in theological terms, Rachel's hot. Uh, she is a very, very attractive woman, and Jacob is absolutely smitten with her. I mean, he is just head over heels. And, and so he tells Laban, hey, you don't have to pay me. I will work seven years for you if you will just give me your daughter Rachel as a wife. Like, if you will just give me Rachel to be my wife, I will work seven years for her. And, and then the text tells us that those seven years that he does this, and they felt like just a few days had gone by because of the great love uh, that he had for Rachel. And I know on first read that sounds really sweet, and I, I hate to burst your bubble, but it's not. Like, this is idolatry. Uh, it, it's, Jacob is looking to Rachel to complete him and fulfill him, uh, and, and there's a ton of clues in this text that Jacob's love for Rachel, it's not just love, it, it's actually idolatry. I mean, I mean, first, the, the bride price that he offers for Rachel is absolutely exorbitant. Uh, when you compare it to kind of the normal dowry, the normal bride price that you would give during these days, Jacob is offering more than four times the normal amount uh, that would have been taking place here and offering to work for Laban for seven years for his daughter Rachel. And, and because he does this, Laban knows that he is a sucker and he's got Jacob in the palm of his hand. And so if you'll notice in verse 19, Laban never actually says yes to this. Right? He, he doesn't, Jacob doesn't say, I'll serve you seven years for Rachel. And Laban says, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do it just like that. No, Laban says, well, I guess it's better that she would go to you than, than to any other man. Like, he doesn't say yes. Jacob hears yes because that's what he wants to hear, but that's not what Laban says. And, and then notice what Jacob says in verse 21. The ESV has it translated, Jacob saying, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. And, and look, that's a pretty accurate translation. I, I think you get the picture of what Jacob is saying here, but it's not really as frank and as forward as what Jacob actually says. I, I think our English translations kind of tone down some of the frankness of it because it is so frank. Uh, but what Jacob basically says here, he, he tells Laban, he says, hey, seven years are up. Give me my wife so that I can have sex with her right now. Like, keep your side of the deal. And you're like, geez, that's pretty bold uh, to say to your future father-in-law. And you're right. Like, it is. He, uh, Robert Alter, a Hebrew scholar, he points out that most people during this time did not speak this frankly. And, and so for Jacob to be this bold and forward and just kind of make this bold statement without any decorum, any euphemism, no beating around the bush just to say it like this, it, it just absolutely jumps off the page in the way he's being almost transactional with Laban. And so all of this is painting the picture for us that Jacob is absolutely obsessed with Rachel, that this is the one thing that he has been thinking about for the past seven years. I mean, you've got to think about it. You've got to put it in context, too. Like, what has happened in Jacob's life up to this point? He was chosen by God to be the son of the blessing at his birth, but he grew up being the neglected son of his father that his dad did not love, and he had to watch his dad love and favorite his brother over him. That was every day that he grew up in the house. And then he uh, deceived his brother, and he deceived his dad, and stole his dad's blessing, and that made his brother so mad he wanted to kill him. It absolutely destroyed his family. He had to run away from his family, flee to the middle of nowhere, and he's poor. He had nothing. He took nothing with him as he ran. 
And now he's in the middle of nowhere working a dead-end job for no pay in the middle of nowhere. I mean, Jacob has got to be thinking, like, my life is awful. It has turned out terrible. But man, Rachel is so hot. If I can just get Rachel, I know things will finally turn around. If I can just get Rachel, I'll have a reason to get up in the morning. If I can just have Rachel, my life will finally make sense. I mean, Jacob was the first Jerry Maguire, literally telling Rachel, like, you complete me. Literally, this is what he is looking to Rachel to do, to complete him and to fulfill him and to give him a purpose, and that's idolatry. Jacob is trying to solve the disappointment and the disillusionment of his life in Rachel, and and that's the wrong place to look for love. It's never going to work. And so what we see next in the text is what happens when when we do that, every time we do that, uh, the disappointment that this leads to. Uh, Because after Jacob tells Laban, hey, give me my wife so that I can have sex with her, uh, Laban's like, okay, uh, we'll have a wedding. And, And so Laban throws this big wedding feast and ceremony for Jacob and presumably Rachel And uh, I'll be honest, before studying this text, I I was always confused on how Jacob was able to be deceived like this, because honestly, like, it seems like it it would be pretty easy to recognize which sister is which, uh, but but these would have been all-day ceremonies, these wedding ceremonies would have been all-day affairs, you would have been drinking heavily the whole day, uh, and then the bride would have been heavily veiled all day. The only time the veil would have come off would have been after the wedding was over, when the Uh, bride and groom went into the tent to consummate the marriage. Uh, And you've got to remember, there's no electricity during this time. Like, there's no flashlights, there's no light bulbs, there's nothing to help Jacob see in the dark. And and so once the festivities are over, when Jacob is good and drunk, and and it's time for them to go in the tent and consummate the marriage, uh, Laban switches out Leah for Rachel, and, and Jacob sleeps with her in the dark, not knowing who it is, Uh, And he goes to bed, and then notice again what happens in verse 25. Uh, He wakes up in the morning, the the hangover is starting to wear off, he rolls over, and and behold, it was Leah, not Rachel. Uh, It's Leah. And so Jacob, he's furious about this, and he runs out to Laban, he's like, dude, what did you do to me? Why did you trick me like this? You know that we agreed that I would work seven years for Rachel, not for Leah, But notice what Laban says to him in verse 26. He says, but that's not how we do it here. That's not the custom. We don't do it that way here. It's not done here to put the younger before the firstborn. Now, does that sound familiar? Who did that? Jacob did that, right? He was the younger that put himself before Esau, the firstborn, and stole his blessing. And and so Jacob, he kind of shuts up here, and I think he realizes that he has nothing to say. He has no ground to stand on because Laban is just doing to him what he did to his dad and his brother first. I mean, think about it. His dad Isaac was blind, and he used the fact of his dad's blindness and his inability to see as the means by which he was going to deceive him and trick him. And so Laban just does the same thing to him. He deceives Jacob in the dark when he cannot see with Leah. And so the cheater just got cheated. Like the deceiver was deceived, Jacob got out Jacobed by his uncle Laban. And really what happened is he just got a taste of his own medicine. Somebody did it to him better than he did it to other people first. 
And, and so Jacob shuts up and realizes he has no argument to make, but, but notice what else happens with Leah. Laban tells Jacob that uh, he should finish out kind of his honeymoon with Leah, and then at the end of the honeymoon, he'll give Rachel to him as well for a wife. And this always confused me growing up. I always thought that he got Rachel at the end of the 14 years, after he had worked for Laban for 14 years, but that's not what happens. Uh, he gets Rachel a week after Leah, and then serves seven more years for Laban, basically on credit. And, and so after a week, Jacob has sister wives, and look again at what it says in verse 30. It says, so Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. And so just like Jacob's dad did with him and favorited his brother over him, he favorites Rachel over her sister Leah. He loves Rachel and he does not love Leah. He hates her. He despises her. He doesn't want anything to do with her. I mean, think about how awful this has to be for Leah. The only thing we're told about Leah before this is that she's the older sister, and verse 17 tells us that she's got weak eyes. And we don't know exactly what that means, but the contrast that the verse sets up with Rachel is good enough to give us a pretty clear picture of what it's talking about. Because if you notice, verse 17 does not say uh, Leah's eyes were weak, but you know, Rachel could see really far. Like, she had 20-20 vision. She didn't have to wear contacts or glasses. No, it says Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And so whatever it is, there's something about Leah that makes her particularly unattractive. Like, maybe it's something with her eyes, but she is particularly unappealing and unattractive, especially in comparison to her sister Rachel. And so you've got to know, like her whole life, she grew up in the shadow of people noticing and praising the beauty of her younger sister, Rachel. And then her worthless excuse of a dad thinks the only way that he's going to be able to get her married off is if he gets Jacob drunk and tricks him in the middle of the night. Like her dad didn't want her, and now her husband doesn't want her, and openly loves and favorites her younger sister over her. I mean, this is an awful, awful situation. But look, just like Jacob was looking to Rachel for identity and for purpose and fulfillment, Leah does the same thing and she looks for those things in Jacob. Listen to what she says as her children are born. Look at verse 31. It says, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction for now my husband will love me. Re- Reuben means see, a son. And so what uh, Leah is saying here is, maybe now my husband will finally see me. Like, I've been invisible to him. He hasn't cared about me. But maybe now that I have given him something that Rachel can't give him, maybe now he'll, he'll pay attention to me. But it doesn't work. Look at verse 33. It says, she conceived again and bore a son. And so because the Lord has heard that I'm hated, He's given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And so it didn't work the first time. And so she thinks, man, maybe now Jacob will hear me. He's never listened to me before. He's never cared before. But maybe now he will hear, hear me and pay attention to me. But it still doesn't work. Look at verse 34. It says, again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name 
was called Levi. And so she says, okay, maybe this time, it hasn't worked yet, maybe this time my husband will love me. Maybe this time he will attach himself to me. Maybe this time he will want to spend time with me because I have given him three sons, but it still doesn't work. Jacob still loves Rachel. He still favorites Rachel. He still wants nothing to do with Leah. It's incredibly raw and sad, right? But, but I've got to tell you, Leah is doing what so many of us do. She's looking to find her fulfillment and her identity and her purpose in Jacob. And just like Jacob, she is looking for love in all the wrong places. And, and when it doesn't work for her the first time, she just tries again a second time. And when it doesn't work for her the second time, she just tries again a third time, and yet it still doesn't work. Listen, this is what we do. We, we look to all of these different things in our lives, especially good things, and we turn them into ultimate things and the things that we're looking to to give us identity and happiness and fulfillment, and, and it doesn't work for us. And then when it doesn't work for us, we just go and try something else, trying to see if that one will work this time, and it always fails us. It can never satisfy I think because it's Super Bowl Sunday, it's just fitting that we bring this quote out again. Uh, Tom Brady, after he had won his third Super Bowl uh, in 2005, CBS was interviewing him. And listen to what he says in this interview at one point. He said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? And so the interviewer asked him, well, what's the answer? And he says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. That's, I think that's part of me going out and trying to experience other things. And so you'd have to ask him now, but I would imagine that even after Super Bowl win four, five, six, and seven, that the answer would still be a lot of the same. This note of disappointment that he can't seem to shake, there's still this feeling of, God, it's got to be more than this. This really can't be it, can it? And so listen, anything in our lives, anything, everything in our lives especially good things, that you turn and try to make into an ultimate thing is going to fail you. It it cannot bear the weight of providing you with an identity and purpose and meaning and happiness. When you do that, when you make a good thing ultimate, either you are going to crush it or it is going to crush you. It cannot bear that weight. I I think you see this also in something that happens with Jacob and the way that he goes to bed thinking that he has Rachel only in the morning to wake up and discover that he actually went to bed with Leah. Uh, One of the commentators, Derek Kidner, he says that the words, behold, it was Leah, are a picture in the embodiment of the disappointment and the disillusionment that we have faced ever since the Garden of Eden, ever since the fall. Tim Keller says the story shows us that there is this just kind of ground note of cosmic disappointment that runs throughout our lives. And and what they both mean by that is that with all of these different things, we think, man, if I can just get that, when I just get that, when I just get there, I'll finally be happy, I'll finally be satisfied, I won't have these feelings of disappointment anymore, life will finally take off, 
uh, and then we get it, and we, we are on our way to getting it, thinking that we have gone to bed with Rachel, only to wake up in the morning and discover that we actually went to bed with Leah, that it cannot satisfy us, that it can't do for us what we thought it was going to do for us at all. And then listen, I'll just tell you, in no way am I trying to be mean to Leah. Like, that's not where this story ends at all, and we'll see that. Man, but I think this just shows this so clearly. Like, everything else in our life is going to do this for us. Like, hear me, I know that some of you right now are thinking, man, when I just get selected, when I just promote, when we just PCS and get to go to the place that we actually want to be and get out of Fayetteville, like when we finally get there, I know we'll be happy. I know things will be going well. I know that things will really take off. We'll be able to plant down roots and find community. And, and like that's the life we're meant to live. That's when things will finally pick up. And, and hear me, for many of you, it's going to happen. Like You will be selected. You will get promoted. You will PCS to the dream place and get your dream home. You will get all of these things and think that you are going to bed with Rachel only to wake up in the morning and discover that it was actually Leah. That there is still this note of disappointment and disillusionment in your life that you just can't shake. God, there's got to be more than this. Is this really it? Is this what I'm really living for? Is this what I worked so hard for? Look, the same thing is true with marriage and parenting, and man, does this story show us this. If we look to our spouse or to our children and try to make them ultimate, it is going to crush us. Like, if we look to our spouse and to our children to be the ultimate place where we find our happiness and security and identity, either we are going to crush them or that expectation is going to crush us. Like, it cannot bear the weight of that. Even the best marriage and family situations cannot do this. Look, in no way am I a marriage counselor, but I can give you this expert piece of marriage advice. Your spouse is an awful, terrible, horrible, no good, very bad God. They're terrible at it. And so are your children. And so if you invest them with that, with those expectations, and you try to make them do and be for you what only God can do and be for you, it can and it is only going to end badly. Like, nothing can do this for us. And and I know this is a super depressing Valentine's Day sermon. Like, don't find love. Uh, It's just going to crush you and lead you into despair. But you've got to hear this. Like, you have to know this. You have to believe this. Nothing else in this world can satisfy you but Jesus. And everything else in this life, everything, especially good things that you look to, whether it's your job, your spouse, your, your children, your hobbies, your achievements, like whatever else it is that you look to and you look for it for identity and purpose and fulfillment, it's just going to let you down. It's just going to fail you. It cannot bear that weight. And if one of those things doesn't work out for you, and then you decide you've just got to try it and find it in another one, you'll be just like Leah with her three sons. Now, maybe this time it will hear me. Maybe this time it will see me. Maybe this time it will love me. Maybe this time it will work. It won't. It won't. Like, if any of these good things in your life become the thing that gets you up in the morning, 
the thing that you are living for, the thing that you daydream about, the thing that you shape everything else around. You are on the way to waking up in the morning thinking that you went to bed with Rachel only to find out that you went to bed with Leah. And this is what's going to happen. This disappointment and disillusionment is what comes every time we look to the wrong places to try and find love. You can't avoid it. You can't escape it. But the good news is that's not where the story ends. Uh, And and Leah, in the birth of her fourth son, uh, she actually shows us where it is we can find this love that we were made for, the right place to look for love. Look at verse 35 at what happens. It says, And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. That's different, right? I mean, that that was almost defiant this time. Like, this time, I will praise the Lord. There's no mention of Jacob. There's no hope that maybe this time her husband will see her, hear her, or love her. No, she's just talking about God. And she talks about God more than Jacob does in this chapter. And here she uses God's covenant name, the name Yahweh, uh, signifying his personal relationship to his people. It's as if she's saying, this God, Yahweh, he is my God. He is the one who has done this for me. Like, listen, that's different, right? Something has changed in Leah. And so what is it? What's changed? Well, I'll tell you what hasn't changed. Her circumstances haven't changed. We'll see this more clearly in our passage next week. Uh, But but from the passage next week, we can tell that between the birth of her third son and her fourth son, like Jacob doesn't start treating her better. He doesn't all of a sudden start loving her, paying attention to her, caring for her, favoriting, uh, stop favoriting Rachel over her. No, Jacob didn't start loving her. Her circumstances didn't get better before she praised God. And once again, we'll see this more clearly next week. Her circumstances don't get better after she praises God here either. Like Jacob never loves her. He never cares for her. He never stops favoriting her sister over her. Her circumstances never get better. It's just that she stops being defined by them. That's what happened here. And so how did that happen for her? Like, what led to this change? Well, I think what happened is that she gets a grasp of the love of God for her. I think the picture that God is painting in verse 31 is basically, it's as if God is saying, when God saw that nobody else loved her, he loved her, and he heard her, he saw her, he cared for her, and he chose her. And listen, I think she gets a grasp of that love, of God's love for her, and it it changes everything. Like, it changes everything so that she's able to say, it doesn't matter if my husband loves me. It doesn't matter if my husband cares for me. It doesn't matter if he ever pays attention to me because I know that God loves me and God cares about me. So this time, I will praise the Lord. She gets a grasp of God's love for her, and it's this grasp of God's love for her that's able to lift her up above her circumstances and give her the strength to not be defined by her circumstances any longer so that she can say, whether things are good or bad, I'm going to praise the Lord. Man, how does that happen? How does that happen for us? Well, I think it happens in the exact same way, by getting our eyes and our heart on the love of God for us that this story points to. And because Notice, uh, Leah is chosen by God to do something really significant here. 
Uh, this fourth son that she gives birth to, Judah, does anybody know what uh, his dad Jacob says about him at the end of the book of Genesis? When Jacob is giving a prophecy about all 12 of his sons, we'll, we'll hear about that next week, but he's giving this prophecy about all 12 of his sons, and he says that a lion is going to rise up out of the tribe of Judah, that the Messiah, the Savior that we have been waiting on all throughout the book of Genesis, that he is coming through Judah's line. You know what that means? That means that God chose Leah and not Rachel to be the one that this promise continues through and to bring the Savior into the world. Like Leah is the mother of Jesus, not Rachel. When God comes into the world, he does not come into the world through beautiful Rachel, but through ugly Leah. Like everyone else hated her, but yet God loved her, and God saw her, and God cared for her, and God chose her and made her the mother of Jesus. Like Jesus came into the world through Leah. And but but not only did Jesus come into the world through Leah, Jesus came into the world like Leah. Like he is the Savior that nobody wanted. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him, that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, that he was the rejected Savior. When he came into this world, he did not come into this world onto a rolled-out red carpet. He was born to poor teenage parents in the backwoods of the Roman Empire. His first bed was a feeding trough in a donkey poop-filled barn. He was poor his whole life. He said he had nowhere to lay his head. His friends abandoned him at his death, and he was put to death on a Roman cross, executed like a criminal. And so in Leah, God's giving us a picture of the gospel. Jesus is giving us a picture of who he is. Like, he, he is God. He is powerful. He is royalty. He is very God of very God, but yet he came to this world in weakness. When he came into this world, he accomplished salvation, not through a great display of power, but through weakness. He accomplished victory through what looked like defeat. And listen, this wasn't an accident. This was actually God's design. St. Augustine said that Jesus is rich because that's what he is as God, but he became poor because that's what we are as humans, so that through the poverty of his humanity, he might make us rich. He might save us. You see, Jesus became like Leah to save Leah's like you and me. This was his design. This is the gospel, and this is how salvation works. You you, Jesus does not come into your life through your strength, but through your weakness, through you admitting there's nothing in your hands that you can bring, that no amount of your beauty or your intelligence or your talents or your skills or your wealth or your moral or religious efforts is enough to earn you right standing with God. Only the work of Jesus can. That the only way you're going to be able to get in is by admitting that you can't do anything to get yourself in. That only the work of Jesus can. And this is the gospel. And so what I want us to do is I want to just kind of draw out two applications from this, implications to, to leave us with and think about as we leave from this text. And so one, let the love of Jesus make you beautiful and rightly order your life. Uh, this quote has just been stirring in my heart all week. I have not been able to get away from it. This quote from Martin Luther, he says, the love of God does not find, but rather creates 
that which is pleasing to it. And what he means is that God does not love us because we are beautiful. No, he loves us when we're not beautiful. And it's actually his love for us that makes us beautiful like Leah. I mean, think about, like Leah was not beautiful, but yet God loved her and God's love for her made her beautiful. I mean, think of the depth of character that she gets to here. She goes from trying to find all of these things in her husband to being able to say, like, I don't care if my husband ever loves me, I'm going to praise the Lord. I'm going to trust him. I'm not going to be defined like this any longer. This is what happens for Leah, and this is what can happen for us. God's love does that in her. It changes her, and it makes her beautiful. And so listen, like if no one else loves you, Jesus loves you. And even if everyone else loves you, it's the love of Jesus that you need the most. Because those other loves, they cannot satisfy you. His is the love that we are searching for. His is the love that we are made for. And his is the only love that can change us and make us beautiful. And it's actually by knowing and experiencing and receiving this love that we are transformed to be able to say like Leah, no matter our circumstances, this time I'm going to praise the Lord. Like how incredible would it be if you and I could get to the point where whether good or bad happens to us, we wouldn't be shaken because we would know that whatever else this world and this life can take from us, it cannot take the love of Jesus away from us. It cannot take away Jesus' absolute delight in us. That will never be shaken from us. This is what can happen. And listen, if, you, if that love becomes real to you, it'll change everything. It will rightly order your life. Because now, a spouse can just be a spouse. Kids can just be kids. A job can just be a job. A passion and a dream and a hobby can just be a passion and a dream and a hobby. You don't have to look to those things to give you identity and purpose and meaning and happiness because Jesus already has. And listen, it's actually Jesus' love that gives us the strength to continue to love others when things aren't going well in our lives. Like if you get the love of Jesus, you will be able to keep loving and serving and doing good to your spouse, even if they're not returning it, because you have the love of Jesus. You'll be able to continue loving and showing grace to a child who's being really difficult because you have the love of Jesus. You'll be able to keep showing grace to an employer or a supervisor because you'll have the love of Jesus. You'll be able to keep showing grace to friends even if you feel like you're not getting a lot back out of that relationship because you have the love of Jesus. You get this. It will make you absolutely untouchable. And this is the most practical thing in the world. And so one, let the love of Jesus make you beautiful. But two, look at the beauty of Jesus. This is actually how number one happens. It's how Jesus' love makes us beautiful. Because the Bible tells us that what we look at is what we will become like. And that what we treasure is what we will begin to shape our lives around. And so to borrow an example, like if money becomes the thing that you treasure and you start thinking about money and you're constantly checking the stock market and your bank account and your savings account and your budget and you're constantly worrying and planning and daydreaming about money, like you're going to start to make decisions in light of that. You're going to start to shape your life around that. That's going to affect how you live your life. And the same thing is true here. Listen, we preach Jesus every week from every text, not just because we think that's who the Bible is about, but because we want you to see him. 
Because we believe that if you actually see him, that will change you more deeply and lastingly than any of our best attempts to give you these practical steps to go home and do this or don't do that ever could. The way to change is to get your eyes and your heart and your mind on Jesus and on seeing his beauty and his worth and his value. If you do that, I promise you the behavior will follow. But look, if you're going to do that, Jesus has got to become more than a doctrinal idea to you. He is a real person who really did this for you because he really loves you. He he took your name to the cross and he purchased your salvation because he loves you and he loved you when you were unlovable. Man, because spiritually, you and I, we were uglier than Leah. And Jesus saw all of that spiritual ugliness, all of that wickedness, Uh, with eyes wide open. He didn't miss any of it, and he still said, her. I want her. I want him. I will love them. I will make them beautiful. Listen, if that love becomes real to you, you will never be the same. Now listen, is it going to happen overnight? No, of course not. This is not an overnight process. And I've got no secret sauce to give you either as to how this happens. You just got to keep getting in the Bible and seeing the glory and beauty of Jesus every day and praying every day that God would make it real to your heart. And look, I promise you, if you'll do that increasingly, He will. He will. He will change you. And so look at the beauty of Jesus and let the love of Jesus make you beautiful. Let me pray that that would happen. God, do that in us, even now. God, I thank you that through the power of your gospel, um, that more is going on here than just information transfer right now, that you can transform people right on the spot where they sit, that you can change our hearts to see the glory and the beauty of your son, Jesus, and behold your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. So would you do it? Would you make his glory the most real thing to our hearts right now in this moment? God, would you help us to do this? to stop looking for love in all the wrong places and to turn our hearts from trying to find it in all these other things and turning it on to you, the one who has always loved us. God, please do it in us. Please change us in this. Make us a people who know that nothing else can satisfy us but you, who run hard after you and and seek to get a sight of you because we know that's what will change us. Jesus, would, would you do this in us? Would you make Veritas Church a, a people in a place that is shaped most ultimately by your love for us? God, may you be doing that even in this moment. In your name, amen.